This is the Final Whistle Podcast from the Wrexham AFC media team. Hello everyone, I'm Mark Griffiths from Wrexham AFC and let's get some more questions answered. Of course, this is the Ask Wrexham podcast that hashtag ASKWXM has been one of the highlights of the season for us because we just love all the interaction that we get from you all, fans, old and you. And... As always, in the Scunthorpe game in midweek, we got to answer some, but by no means all questions. So let's now mop up the best of the best and some of the ones that we didn't get round to. A follow-up one first from one season with Wrexham AFC. We talked last week on the last Ask Wrexham regular podcast about their theory that Elliot Lee playing in a deeper role maybe has somehow affected Ollie Palmer's effectiveness. I, I thought it hadn't. Um, but they've responded to my logic, which you can hear last week, saying um, <clears throat> one area we still disagree on is about Palmer playing well since the tweak in Lee's role. I think he's played as best he can, but but pushed out wide, we hoof to his head rather than allow him to hold it up with his feet. It's the error we make with all big uns up front, we rarely, they rarely win high, uh, sorry, high balls out on the left wing. So it's also meant we create less from his holding the ball up and he's in the, spa- in the space where the left wing back wants to be. Um, I fancy revisiting this later on. Well, let's revisit it now and then keep revisiting it. I think it's a fascinating subject. I, I don't agree. I've got to be honest. But then this is one, this is an eye test now, isn't it? It's... It's how it looks. Oh, my phone's getting involved. Um, it's how it looks to us, isn't it, more than anything else? Um, for me, I don't think we thump the ball forwards to big players too much. Certainly not at the moment, because we've got such a good midfield. Except for when things break down, which has happened sometimes in away games. Certainly hasn't in home games. And to me, <coughs> that my in recent weeks, my main fo- sort of picture of Palmer in build-up play is him receiving the ball to chest or feet holding her up and bringing other players into play sometimes that does happen on the flanks but you know I, I, movement's what football's all about isn't it I would argue we're fluid and fluent and Palmer drops off picks up different little pockets that allow space for other players like you're saying about the left wing backs um, I mean McFadgen loves to come inside and underlap doesn't he and we saw good examples of that as well on Wednesday. Mendy cutting inside to shoot. And also Hall Johnson constantly popping up in the D. Something he particularly likes. And on one occasion playing Cluethen on the overlap. So, you know, if your striker sticks in the middle, those gaps don't appear. I'd also question whether that's linked to Lee playing on the left-hand side of midfield. Because you're putting your best creative passer closer to Lee when he moves on the left. So he can combine with him. So... I, um, yeah, we agree to disagree and we'll keep an eye on it and see how things develop quite right um, now speaking of Elliot Lee uh, you may have heard I just want to recommend something that's nothing to do with the club but the Footballers Mindset podcast had a, a superb interview with Elliot Lee in which he talked about all sorts of things talked about being in Wrexham he talked about maintaining good mental health as a professional footballer it was frank and wonderful and really really I strongly recommend it it's the most recent podcast on their feed um I I really would have a listen to it I'll, I'll stick the link into the description as well but it's it's superb and Elliot Lee is extremely eloquent in the way that he expresses himself it's a real treat to listen to 
Now then, Michelle Olsen, thinking about that Scunthorpe game. Uh, on the starting lineup, um, are they resting the, the usual folks since it's an FA Trophy match and not a league game? Yes, absolutely. The FA Trophy, most definitely the third of our priorities. I, I mean, let's be honest here, though. You do sometimes wonder, I mean, well, managers taking gambles in their lineups in cup competitions is really something that came in in probably the 90s. Before then, cup competitions, there was no such thing as resting or rotating players. If you were fit, you tended to play. I could be old-fashioned about it and say, yeah, they don't make them like they used to. But the fact of the matter is that from the 90s onwards, the amount of uh, ground players cover on a pitch has multiplied spectacularly. There are many more demands made on players. The standards of fitness are so much higher. It's right to do this. Plus, I mean, clubs have sports scientists backing this up, analysing players' states and, and saying, this guy can't play this week. Now, I must be honest, it, it is a gamble to rotate. Sometimes you sense managers are happy to take a considerable gamble. I mean, if we look, say, at Liverpool in the early stages of the FA Cup and the League Cup, they often pick teams full of young lads who have not broken into the first team at all. And, you know, OK, these are technically good players. If you're a young player signed up to Liverpool, you're going to be a very good footballer, but you may not be battle-hardened. And it is a genuine gamble. They'll often mix them in with a few sort of old hands who aren't in the first team picture. Um, but, you know, that is a bit of a gamble. And I think that is a fairly explicit message of we prioritise the league and the Champions League. And although we'd like to win other things, Liverpool did win the League Cup and the FA Cup last season. Um, we It's not a disaster if we don't. But that's the nature of the gamble. Um, Parkinson... He changed nine players, <laughs> so obviously he was giving his senior players a rest, mostly. But having said that, he equally was calculating that Scunthorpe were in bad form, they're bottom of our league, and this team can beat them, and he was right. So it's a gamble, but you know there are different types of gambles, aren't there? There are some more risky than others. Wrexham, different managers have viewed it in different ways. I wrote this up. It's on uh, the Wrexham fan blog from a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you've got, I think it was, maybe it was on a match preview. Oh, I think it was actually the preview of the Scunthorpe game. Uh, Dean Keats, for example, regularly picked uh, a backup 11 and in his last ever FA Trophy game, oh no, bar one, uh, he picked a side at Halifax, which he would virtually dismantle by uh, sort of two months later at the end of the season because he'd inherited a poor squad. He'd had to work very hard to try and rebuild it. And he basically selected a team with the players he didn't want with some young prospects mixed in, uh, <laughs> like Max Kluwerth, for example, because he just it was a distraction for him, the trophy from the, the key job, which at that time, believe it or not, was to avoid getting relegated rather than to try and get back up into the Football League. So weak was the team he'd inherited and the bad start they'd had. Um, and then other managers will take the approach, as Parkson did last year, of pick youthful teams or understrength, if you will, teams that can win in the early stages. And then if they get through the first couple of rounds, maybe you start bringing in the big guns. We have got good strength and quality and depth in the squad. That's, as I've said a number of times, what Parkson's done over last summer. So... It may well be, well, I'll be interested to see what he does at Altrincham.
whether he says that team can beat Altrincham because Altrincham are better than Scunthorpe and it's away from home. Or will he say, OK, it's, it's time to, to bring in maybe a, a sprinkling more of uh, the players who are, can win matches? We'll see. It'll be interesting, won't it? More stuff on the FA Trophy. Um, Darren's Happy Place says it seems the Cup games are a great opportunity for reserves to show their quality. Have there been occasions when a Wrexham reserve player has done so incredibly well in a Cup match that they've earned a regular spot in the first team? Yes, but may maybe we need to just make clear here the distinctions between first teams and reserve teams and backup players. I would say everybody playing in that match, yeah, would be considered part of the first team squad, if you will. Um, okay, some are further away from getting the first 11 place than others. It's not like in some other sports, or certainly in, in some other countries in football, where you tend to have separate squads almost. Spain's a classic example of this. So Spain, like some countries in Europe, will have their reserve the big teams will have the reserve teams playing in the lower divisions. Something that the big Premier League teams want to bring in in Britain, and it's always failed because it goes absolutely counter to, to British football culture. You know, in Spain they do, but in all honesty, Britain's quite unusual in having a pyramid that goes this far down. I mean, okay, Wrexham are a big team to be in the fifth level, but there are other similar sized teams, and even if you're not, the local teams really matter and no other country has professional football going this far down and I'm not saying that players don't take it seriously but it, it's a different matter lower division football so there's much less of a chance for people to object if Barcelona B team are in your league the way it works by the way is they can go up the leagues as much as they want but they can't play in the same league as their parent team so, for example, should Barcelona B team get promoted from the second division, currently in the third division, got promoted from the second division, they would not be allowed to go up. Um, sometimes there are peculiar situations, like uh, when Real Madrid Castilla, who were the second team for Real Madrid in the early 80s, won the Spanish, well, no, got to the final of the Spanish Cup and played, pause for dramatic effect, Real Madrid. And oddly enough, they didn't cause any problems with their senior players. They lost 6-0. But because Real Madrid also won the league, Real Madrid Castilla qualified for Europe, playing in the now-defunct European Cup Winners' Cup, the competition Wrexham used to play in, and played West Ham, a game which, in which they didn't trouble West Ham too much, but unfortunately there was hooliganism when the West Ham fans went to Spain. So, yeah, it's a different sort of culture, that. But th those the point I'm trying to make, very long-windedly, those Spanish teams do have a separate squad. And you have to go through a process to allow the backup players to come into the first-team squad. You're only allowed so many times to do that in a season. Um, in Britain, that's not the case. So any of these players can be picked, anyway, regularly by Wrexham. So it's not quite the same leap in a way most certainly you've seen players impress in games like this and put themselves on the radar and our contemporaries examples of that will be jake bickerstaff and max Cluith. they oh this is very odd under dean keats what will be one two three seasons ago we somewhat bizarrely were in the scottish cup equivalent of the FA Trophy in a way, the competition in Scotland for teams outside the top division because they decided to try and spice it up and make it British. 
Um, nobody in the Football League or Premier League obviously was interested in joining in. And so basically the two highest placed teams in the National League who didn't get promoted were put into the Scottish Challenge Cup the next season, as indeed were the top couple of teams in Wales, top, top teams in Northern Ireland and in Ireland. Um, so really weird hybrid competition. Nobody in the National League wants to play in it. Uh, they haven't done it since COVID, and I don't know whether they intend to ever bring back that they come in. If they had it done for this season, we'd have been playing in it. It was certainly a peculiarity, and at least meant we got to go to Ibrox, Rangers' famous stadium, to play their youth team. Although Dean Keats didn't take the competition too seriously, so we picked our youth players and those same players he'd get rid of and lost. But the point I'm trying to make is that Max Clueth made his debut in the first of those matches and played in all the games and was excellent. He was our best player, I thought, by a distance at Rangers, playing as a defensive midfielder. Didn't lead to immediately being in the team, but it put him on the radar as a, a young player who could be fast-tracked through. And, you know, Phil Parkinson obviously came in after Keats left and picked Clueth for the first game of the next season. Now, let's be honest, that will partly be from what, mostly, should I say, from what he's seen in pre-season. But Clueth definitely, I think, developed and became one to watch, having confirmed his promise in three senior matches. Uh, Bickerstaff, likewise, scored on his debut in the first of those matches against Air United. And, you know, he, people have been watching him ever since. His progress has been slightly slower in the sense you could see he had something. And Keats actually trusted him at the start of his second season. I just realised, no, it's a season before when Punks took over, isn't it? So it's, well, yeah, three seasons ago. <coughs> Gave him a few games, but he's spent a lot of time out on loan. And having look, looked at him on Wednesday, he really looks to have developed. He looks to have a sharper edge to him. Certainly looks more physically capable now of dealing with big defenders. So there's two very obvious current examples. I mean, another one, oh, is this quite the same? You sometimes we had a pecu another peculiar competition called the Welsh Premier Cup, which was a replacement for the Welsh Cup when we were expelled from it. Teams playing in the English Pyramid were told to either move to the League of Wales or forfeit being in the Welsh Cup. And obviously, we're going to stay in the Football League because going to the League of Wales, you know, playing in front of crowds of 200 would be a remarkable decision. Not that I'm knocking the League of Wales, but it's not for us. Um, but the Welsh Premier Cup was created as a rather strange sort of substitute where the English-based teams could play. It was sort of unofficial in a way. Um, and we we dominated it, actually. We used to win it regularly. We would often, in the group stages, because we were playing mostly against Welsh League teams, pick a mixture of reserves and youth players in the group matches and would still get through comfortably. And that led to a few things happening. Uh, some young players, I think, got a bit of experience that they wouldn't have got otherwise and developed and went on to better things. Obvious examples, Neil Roberts, who went on to play for Wales, a superb player for us as a striker, and then also came back for a second spell and was converted, frankly, because he was the best player. <laughs> you know, I mean, he was too good for the level of football we were at. He was sort of converted to a midfielder so as he would be amongst everything and was our captain. Um when we got relegated to the National League, he was in that team and was head and shoulders above everyone else that season and then remarkably became the first player of the season we ever had who then got released, um, which was 
an astonishing act of vandalism on his own squad by Brian Little, um, and I think may have partly been caused by a fear of having strong characters in the changing room. And Neil Roberts, as far as I'm aware, and I know him, you know, know a bit, uh, is not a troublemaker. He is a wholehearted Wrexham fan. Apart from being a wholehearted player, he played for Wales. He's high quality, and for me, those sorts of strong characters are the sort of players you desperately want in your changing room. So you know, answers on the back of a postcard to that one. Very, very peculiar. But Ray Roberts was a, a class player who developed through. Neil Wainwright was a very gifted winger who came through in those games as well. Looked deeply impressive, and earned a move to Sunderland eventually. Um, Things didn't quite work out for him, sadly. I think he left us too soon because he was making a real impact in League One. And I think it would have been wise if he'd stayed for another year with us to really get more experience. He left a bit early for my liking. And then also, um, a club legend. Try this one for size. Andy Morell. Superb playing legend. Managerial legend. Now, he was a fringe player for about two, three years in the league and you know in the big games and was really sort of characterized by being an extremely hard-working striker didn't score in the early days that much in those sort of big matches always somebody that you would rely on somebody who put in a superb shift but didn't score the goals and volume that you maybe would want um but when he plays in these welsh premier cups he was phenomenally prolific i mean leo messi prolific scoring way more than one goal a game on average. He set the club record for most goals scored in a game, scoring seven goals against Merthyr Tidville. It was quite fun, I remember being at that game and, and recalling how embarrassed he started looking after he started scoring all the other goals. Um, and this stood him in good stead because, you know, that, that I think it you know, certainly would have kept him in the manager's thoughts. He maybe isn't scoring in the league, but look at him, he's got something. And... Uh, his big breakthrough then came when he was given a chance at the start of the season, 2002-2003. Wrexham were promoted. He wasn't just sensational. He was the top scorer in the entire country. So, you know, he was you know, a player we'd had for a little bit. But I think that, that pr phenomenal, prolific form he had in a minor competition, playing with often weaker lineups, I think played a big, big role in him staying and eventually developing into what he would become, which is a, a genuine club legend. Um, now, also, um, Jan Sondendien says, a jar, I beg your pardon, Jar Sondendien says, the attendance seemed okay, uh, seemed low, late start or something else for the Scunthorpe game. Um, FA Trophy. Um, that's actually a very, very good crowd for the FA Trophy, who <laughs> don't take it that seriously, really, but the support for the club is such now. I mean, I, I know from people in work who, who got tickets for the match because there's no way they're going to have a, a strong chance of getting tickets for the, the sellout league games. So, yeah, that, that over 5,000, that is a really good crowd for an FA Trophy match. In fact, I haven't checked this, and I should have done, but I wouldn't be surprised if that's the second biggest ever at the racecourse for an FA Trophy match. And considering we played semi-finals there with a, a place at Wembley at stake, well, that's that's quite something, isn't it? Um, Dean Rogers said, um, oh, I haven't checked this. I'm a twit. I forgot to check this. I'll, I'll look this up. Oh, it's going to take days, though. 14 different scorers after just 27 games. Have we ever had so many individual scorers at the start of a season? I'll need to look that up. 
but it, it is impressive that we've got such depth in squad that players contribute like that and we're getting goals from all around the pitch too <coughs> David Forrester said that about because Scunthorpe turned up late for the game. They arrived 15 minutes after the scheduled kickoff time. The game kicked off 45 minutes late. Um, he asked, uh, <laughs> I love this, is it true that the Scunthorpe bus stopped at the first Welsh ground it came to and was then stuck in a traffic jam on the Great Greyhound Retail Estate on Sealand Road? Yes, for new fans, I must emphasise, a key thing to be accepted as a, a true Wrexham fan is to mock Chester because part of their ground is in Wales. Because, of course, it's it's an Anglo-Welsh rivalry. Chester see themselves as guarding the frontier to England. And that's historical as well. It used to be the Welsh would come and attack Chester back centuries ago and would be repelled because they had the Roman walls around the ground, around the ground, around the city. And then they would do that old medieval thing of sticking uh, killed Welsh warriors' heads on spikes around the wall to deter people. They would come through a part of Chester just outside the walls over the river called Hanbridge. I used to live in Hanbridge. I was a fifth colonist. And... It had an ancient Welsh name, apparently, a Treboeth, which was like place of fire. Because generally what would happen would be the Welsh would attack Chester, be repelled, and they would set fire to Ambridge on the way home. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, happy days. But they don't like us pointing out that a good chunk of their ground is actually... Their ground, the border goes through their ground, and a good chunk of it is in Wales. And they don't like us pointing that out. So I just want to say, well done, David for suggesting that, yeah, Scunthorpe had dropped off at the first Welsh ground they, they found, but unfortunately it was Chester's. Um, Darren's happy place as well, saying, I imagine Scunthorpe driving in circles at a roundabout somewhere. When's the last forfeit you've seen at Wrexham? Right, now, I, I'm, I feel sure I haven't seen one. I've seen a near one, which would have been galling, and I'll get to that in a sec. Don't think so. There are some more ones here about late kickoffs, which I'll um, I'll just mention uh, in a moment. As Padge says, I wonder what the longest delayed kickoff on the day has been in our history. Could be an interesting one. Yeah, I, I I'm going to have to look into that. I don't know if I'll be able to find the answers to that. Um, what's the latest game start you, you've seen for a match? Um, says Darren's happy place as well. Ooh, again, I, I've got some. I'll, I'll come to that in a sec. The I've I've been close to a forfeit, and it was really galling. It was what again first that season, I think three seasons ago. We were at Ebbsfleet, which is down south of London. It's on it's on the uh, the direct train from London to Paris line, and there's a big international station there. Um, and the club had financial problems. The players hadn't been getting paid. And it was peculiar. It's obviously a long journey down. I got there. I'm sitting in the press box. And then this piece of typed paper suddenly is handed to me by a fan. And there'd been talk of like protests against the owners because obviously there were cash flow problems. But he handed me this. And it was from the players saying, uh, unless we're our pay is resolved by 2.30, we refuse to play the game. Now, I'm not going to say strike action's wrong. I'm definitely not going to say that. And I think they're within their rights to withdraw their labour. I think it's a bit off to do it an hour before kickoff when your opponents have travelled from North Wales to Essex 
and when oh, it was not Kent, is it Gravesend? Yeah, and the, the fans and people like that have done likewise and spent a lot of money, and then might not see again. Um, so I was a bit, mm, <laughs> I had mixed feelings about that. I was a bit concerned. Uh, they didn't meet the deadline, the owners, but the team did decide to play. They didn't warm up because the game was so up in the air. They didn't warm up. So it wasn't forfeited. They did come out on time and play. And here's the thing. I mean, obviously, they were struggling. So were we. But obviously, they've not even warmed up. We're going to batter them, aren't we? We were losing 3-0 at halftime. It was awful it was oh my gosh we fought back it was a crazy second half uh fought back and lost 4-2 in the end but it was insanity there was a bizarre incident we got it back to 3-2 and then we had a striker who's been on Dragonheart. It was a nice interview with him last year got jason oswell and he, he tried to battle his way through and managed to get past the goalkeeper the goalkeeper was ashmore the boreham wood goalkeeper who always plays well against us he managed to get past him because there was a mistake by the keeper, but he had his back to the goal and didn't realise there was no one between him and the goal. And if he just hit it with a back heel, it was a goal. It'd be three all. We'd have capped a crazy comeback. Um, but we, he didn't. He had no way of knowing. Nobody obviously gave him the shout, and in the end, they managed to block him off and get the ball off him. And he went up the other way and scored. But yeah, that was crazy. Late kickoffs. Right, this is non-Rexham related. I mentioned this in the commentary. Well, Neil mentioned as well that those games in Qatar, the late games, were kicking off 10 o'clock local time. Um, in Brazil, I know that live games aren't allowed to impinge upon the telenovelas, the Brazilian soap operas that are massive. So they often have games kicking off like 5 to midnight because they, they can't cut into the schedules, but it's going to be on live on TV by hook or by crook. And for a while, they've stopped it now. The Spanish leagues trying to get every single game in the top division separately shown on TV so you could watch every match would have an 11 p.m. kickoff, um, uh, which meant, I'm sure it was, was it Ante Budimir who played for the Croatians? No, I don't think it was. Oh, some big, tough centre forward who's played from Real Mallorca um, scored a goal in each half and therefore scored on two consecutive days in the same game. But they stopped doing that. Even though the Spanish uh, is a late-night culture, even that was a bit of a push too far. Um, there was also, and I'm struggling to remember the details of this, a weird one with Barcelona, which oddly the opponents played along with, where they wanted to get around the FIFA rules about um, international call-ups that if you stopped a player from playing for their country, they'd be suspended for the next few days to stop them playing the game that you stopped them going to their country for. And so I'm sure it was Ronaldinho would have been suspended. And so they kicked a game off at two in the morning to make him eligible because it was the set number of hours after that the game he would have played for Brazil would have kicked off in you know obviously time differences um very weird one Canadian Red Dragons rightly pointed out to Scunthorpe seen the, the floodlights to get them to the race course it does seem like um <laughs> yeah a massive floodlight should have been the giveaway bless them no not bless them they should have turned up on time Especially when you see what Nate Dyer did. Look at this. Living in Wyoming, minus 20 degrees, minus 60 wind chill, 40 mile an hour winds. 
and snowing and rattled back a hundred miles in order to listen to the game and then they turn up late how yes exactly if you're watching the, the video there is a great video of it so please search it up nate dyer um he, he did that puzzle little video up of uh, his journey yikes um and then yeah mark chase saying scunthorpe stuck in traffic uh, he think they take the game seriously and leave a, a tad earlier to allow for traffic and arrive in time for warmth. Well, I mean, that, that is my beef. And that is actually, I'm going to put it up on Christmas Eve the on the Wrexham fan blog. The piece I wrote in the Evening Leader this week was basically complaining about Scunthorpe. They're a professional club. There is no excuse for this. <clears throat> the norm, well, actually, I think this is addressed in a moment. I'll come back to it in a second. Um, as... Yeah, Andy Davis said, "Is what's the latest the game's kicked off? Now, Danny Bronson, yes, I'll come to this in a sec. He said, I'm always surprised that the team rolls in close to game time. It happened when I was at Boreham Wood with Wrexham. Why are they not uh, there the night before, or at least ready in the day for the match that's in the evening? Um, oh, sorry, early in the day. Right, now then, before I answer this, Andy Ball gave some good answers. A few factors. One, cost, correct. Two, they're only a few mile, hours away and generally leave early. Also correct. Um, yes, and that's why it's inexcusable. I think what, what Scunthorpe did. Because, yeah, there, there's two norms and it is a cost-related thing. You stay overnight in a hotel and then you go to the game on the day. Or you, yeah, you travel on the day but you leave in plenty of time. Now, Scunthorpe clearly failed to do the latter. I mean, the M62 is notoriously busy. Travelling east to west, whether by car or train, is much, much more difficult than travelling north-south. And I'm sorry, but I mean, there's no excuse. Their fans got there, who were heroic, by the way. Um, and their media team were there a good couple of hours ahead of time. I got there at half five, and one of their media lads was there already, and the others were there about 20 minutes later. So they had no problem either. Um, no, it's just sloppiness. I have heard many stories of managers just being stubborn and wanting to do things their way. I'm not saying in this case, I'm, I'm really not saying that, but with Wrexham and making the team late-ish. I'm not saying before, but I've heard about Parkinson being like that either. I emphasise. Um, and to be honest, uh, Danny, yeah. So that Warren Wood one's strange, but... Right, I th right. I, I'm willing to be corrected on this. I'm roughly correct. There is a regulation for how early you should arrive before a match. I think it's an hour. Or it could be an hour ten. Maybe it's an hour ten. I think. Oh, I should have checked this. You'll have to give your team in by an hour before kickoff. This is why the Wrexham team sheet was delayed, because Scunthorpe weren't giving their team in because they hadn't arrived, and so therefore Wrexham have the right to say, well, you know, we're not giving hours in because we need now a time from the ref to say when they should be handed in. This game is delayed, and Scunthorpe have an advantage if they know what we've picked. So, yeah, Wrexham, before Rob and Ryan took over, will have avoided overnights the managers always wanted overnights because obviously that's much better for them in terms of preparation but we couldn't afford to so overnight stays were fairly rare it was usually an early morning journey they'd stop on the motorway in the service station then they'd go on and they'd have a hotel booked and have a meal 
and then that hotel will be quite close to the ground. So they've done the, the majority of travel and they can stay near the ground, have a meal and then make a short journey there. So there's no way they're going to be late. And if there was a problem, and this is why Scunthorpe's inexcusable, if there was a problem, well, that stop on the hotel is your buffer zone as well, isn't it? If needs be. Um, so Wrexham going to Boreham Wood. I didn't I didn't notice myself, David. You will be fined if you, if you turn up late. Um, I didn't notice that we were late, but I, I, can't, I didn't notice anything out of the ordinary, but I could be wrong. Um, but like I said, you can arrive, I think it's one hour ten before the match. Wrexham will have been, I suspect these days, Wrexham will have stayed overnight and will have just had a meal in a hotel nearby and just had like a 20-minute journey in or something like that. So they would have been comfortable that they were going to make it on time. Danny's follow-up question was, is it different in the, the big leagues? And Andy, again, correctly responds, sorry, my eyesight's ropey. I'll drop out a shot if you're watching on the video. He says, yeah, for sure. Let's just say Newcastle were playing Southampton. It's near enough 12-hour round trip on the coach. Most teams would travel the day before and stay over, but some might travel down by plane if they have enough money. Yes, 100% correct. That's right again, Andy, isn't it? Um, the big teams will spend a lot of money on transport. There's been some pressure lately on teams travelling by plane because of the environmental impact. Um, and actually some teams, some, travel by train. This also happens actually in the National League. Now, the British train system, sadly, when I was a student, was brilliant. It was cheap, it was affordable, it was simple. Now it's been privatised and it's all those adjectives, it's the exact opposite. It's expensive, it's complicated, it's inconvenient. Um, but big teams can buy out the first class section or even charter a train and I've actually once come back on by train from a Wrexham game and seen Manchester United's team in a train at Euston Station but they have bodyguards on the doors so that Rooney and all them don't get disturbed um, there's interestingly a scheme with the National League so we actually sometimes see teams rushing to get away from the ground at the race course because they're all going back by train and I never understood this because I thought it's extortionate. I mean, you see, the clubs, what club can afford in a national league to pay, what, 20 fares? That'd be madness. If you're coming from London, that's going to be £100 each. Very expensive, much cheaper to rent a coach. But um, I spoke to Geraint Parry, the club's secretary, Wrexham secretary, who knows everything. And he said there's a special scheme where football teams are can can book, can group book at a big discount to get them to matches and back. So some clubs do do that. Um, I remember there was a stink over Arsenal a couple of years ago going to Norwich by plane. Now, Norwich is not that far from London. Um, There's a real sh bit of a short hop. And Arsenal tried to justify it by saying, oh, but the roads are bad. Didn't go down very well, that. But yeah, sometimes plane, sometimes train, or they'll stay over. Interestingly, if you're in Europe, and this is perfectly understandable when you think of what Scunthorpe is, if you're playing in Europe, you have to be in the host country the day before, which led to the peculiar situation when Wrexham were in Europe playing Man United, that Man United had to stay in Flangothlan overnight, and Wrexham had to stay in a hotel in Chester overnight to make sure we turned up for a game which, in which the two grounds are 60 miles apart. So, uh, you know, pick the bones out of that one. Uh, I nearly went by plane to a match once because Eastie's ground is right next to Southampton Airport, but I, I balked at it in the end. just felt a bit too bourgeois. Uh, Spirit of 78 says, um, 
which team that we've played at this level have fallen through the leaves down the pyramid the furthest, um, not counting teams that don't exist. Because, yeah, some teams plummet to this level from higher up and then the, the strain is such that they can't take it and they, they, fall, they go out of existence, have to rebuild, or even that that's the reason they drop down in the first place and they're on that process. Well, um, I mean, the obvious one, because there's been a bit of media talk about it, is Oldham. Because, of course, Oldham drop, are the first team to have played in the Premier League and then drop down to the fifth level in history. But we have to remember, and this is a bit of a bugbear for me, as I quite enjoy the stats, you may have noticed. Remember the Premier League, which everyone refers to as, oh, yeah, yeah, that's the be-all and end-all, started in 1992. So, you know, you have 104 years before then when the Football League was created. So... You know, all that stuff happened, all that stuff counts. So there are a couple of teams we played in the in the National League as well who played in the top level, but before it was called the Premier League. So in the 80s, Luton Town were in the top level and Oxford United were. And both of them, in fact, won the League Cup. So, yeah, these are, these are big clubs who would tumble down a, a fair distance to get to us. Oh, Notts County did as well. When I was a little kid, Notts County were in the top division. Um, there was sort of a yo-yo team between the first and second divisions, so we often play them in the league, and then they'd go up. So yeah, Notts County is another one. Have I forgotten someone else then? Because Notts County just came to me then. I've had like four days thinking about this. Grooms we haven't in the top division. Chesterfield haven't. No, I think that's pretty much it. Cambridge haven't. No, I think that. I think that's it. No, but the rovers haven't. Yeah, so I think it's just those ones, unless you know better. Um, Dave Chilcott has been watching the uh, excellent documentary Bunch of Amateurs, which is Dorking Wanderers on their YouTube channel. And he says, uh, the manager, Mark White, indicates that the focus for non-league clubs is to win a first-round FA Cup game because it pays for the whole season. Do clubs ever offer bonuses for cup runs to players? Um, Rex American Idiot says an FA Cup run certainly looks more lucrative than an FA Trophy run in terms of prize money and has attached something very useful. I'll show you in a second. I'm also looking forward to the thoughts on how clubs leverage sorry, those two tournaments. Uh, Dave, yeah, absolutely. Bonuses will be offered for cup competitions at whatever level you might want. I mean, it's interesting. See, Dorking is, is quite a new club, is a small club, is an admirable club. I'm not being belittling in saying that. And so with their budgets, as they've as they've known, as they've always existed, just the highest level they've ever been at this season, um, yeah, a first-round cup game would be a massive deal for them anyway. They'd have to qualify to get that far. And, yeah, so that, that sort of money would be substantial for them. Um, for us, it's the third round, really. I mean, we've got Coventry away. We will get good money out of it. If we got Man United away, we've got crazy money out of it. Um but certainly the players may well be incentivized, especially if the club thinks, right, as a target, if we can get that cup game, that will bring money in. Uh, you know, we want to incentivize the players. Now then, as for Wrexham American Idiot's point about uh, prize money, well, I think this is a beautiful illustration of what we were talking about earlier and why the FA Trophy is not taken as seriously as the FA Cup, because he provided... A very useful list of the prizes for going in each round. Now, Wrexham are now in the third round proper. 
So we entered in the fourth round qualifying stage. The losers in that stage will get 3,125. So Blythe Spartans, who started, it was about four, I think they started first round qualifying or second round qualifying, they would have got 3,000 pounds, or 3,125 for losing to us. Then in the first round, it was Oldham. So if we'd lost that, so the money jumps 41,000 quid. But we won, so Oldham got the 41,000. Then we played Farnborough. And then again, a jump, 67,000. I mean, can you see like what, what Dorking is saying? If they get into the first round and lose, regardless of whether they get money from the attendance or anything like that, they'll get £40,000 in the bank. So that's a big help. If they get to the second round, lose 67. That's fantastic. And there are big teams in the FA Cup who could, you know, if you go to Portsmouth or somewhere like that, get a good crowd. And the rules in the FA Cup, it's, it's very egalitarian, a much bigger cut of the crowd uh, receipts is given to the away team. So it is a chance for smaller teams to genuinely fill their boots. They're often, uh, they're supposed to be given a bigger percentage of the of the crowd as well. I remember going to see Wrexham play at Man United in 1997, six, um, maybe five. And we, they gave us pretty much everything behind the goal. It was fantastic. You know, there's a hell of a lot of Wrexham fans there. But the jump now, so Wrexham now are guaranteed, even if we lose at Coventry, £105,000. So that's a substantial whack. And certainly if Dorking, to carry on the analogy, got there, brilliant. And then you'd go up. If we win that game, we're guaranteed 120,000. The furthest Wrexham have ever got three times, and this is remarkable for a club of our size, but three times we've got to the quarterfinals. If we did that again, £450,000. Lincoln City went up um, well, about four or five years ago and also got to the quarterfinals of the FA Cup, and that really set them up to try and progress up the leagues, the amount of prize money they were getting in, and, of course, the amount of gate receipts. Now, let's contrast that to the lovely old FA Trophy, where if you win it, you'll get 60000 So, Wrexham, by beating Farnborough, have already guaranteed that we will get more than if we win the FA Trophy. If you if you lose in the second, well, but no, beg your pardon, by beating Oldham in the first round, we guaranteed we'd make at least 67,000. Farnborough got 67,000 in prize money. For a team, the division below us, that's great, isn't it? Because they would get less if they went to Wembley and won the trophy. Obviously, though, you know, that, that would be um, something that, you know, they get compensated in other ways by crowds, although you don't get many crowds, really. I've just realised, of course, I've misread that. Sorry for the hesitation, because this table's slightly different. It's cumulative, isn't it? So let's see. If you lose in the first round, so Scunthorpe will have got £775. Congratulations. So, OK, if you win in the first round, you get 3000 So Exxon would have got 3000 this week. Then 3750 so 6750 if you win in the second round in total, then another 4,600, then 5,260, 6,000 if you win in the fifth round, quarterfinal 7,500, semi-final 15,000. Okay, so do some quick maths. 75, 82, 60, 88, 60. 
93, no, it wasn't 60, 93, 850, 97, 98, 350. You can tell this could be wrong, couldn't it? Um, 100 and, 105,550 pounds, I reckon, accumulated if you win it, which is pretty much exactly, it's 550 pounds, well, it's 50 pounds more, no, 550, oh no, it's 160, yeah. It'd be five hundred fifty pounds more than if we won at Coventry, so it is it is decent money, but it's not it's not nuts, is it? Um, anyway, let's move away from the exciting live mental maths. As um, Manxy Eleven was saying, it's pity that Griffin Neal can't do live commentary for fans at the games. Well, just for your information, we sort of used to because we had before the superb. Um, commentary set audio description commentary set up for fans who can't see the game which is funded by the Wrexham Disabled Supporters Association we did have a setup where we could commentate for fans who wanted to come and be with their friends and couldn't see the game unfortunately we did that under a, a dodgy Wrexham regime the club's job was to administer handing out all the handsets which the Wrexham Supporters Association had paid for so that Fans could go anywhere in the ground if they couldn't see or were partially sighted and could listen to the game live. And the club basically just gave them all away and didn't have any systems getting them back and didn't care. And so it died. It was very, very frustrating. Uh, now, of course, the club's run over the hill, as it was under the trust as well. Um, but yeah, that was a really annoying point in, our, in when I was broadcasting. Um, if, if you tried to listen to us, of course, on Wrexham Player, we wouldn't be live in the ground because there's a delay. Uh, the audio description guys basically the equipment they've got is fantastic and flashy and they essentially are a tiny radio station they are broadcasting live completely live they have a little transmitter so yeah if you, if you get the equipment from them you hear what's happening as it happens um, Darren's Happy Place had a, a few good questions the game against Scunthorpe maybe want to ask about referees do refs in the FA Trophy games are the refs in the FA Trophy games in the Vanarama National League yes they are um, what kind of training do they receive well they they qualify for different badges as they go up so they do have to qualify through experience and training so it is a system and you know the national league you see players get refs getting into the football league and then going up into the premier league again it's a it's a pyramid system and you you climb up it to get to the higher levels and also um is it a side job for most of them yes uh, at this level the premier league refs are full-time um, that was brought in, I think, in the 80s or 90s, maybe. No, it was brought in by the Premier League, I think. It was just in 92. Um, and then at our level, they will be part-time. They will have other jobs. Um, and then the other one, well, our refs graded or reviewed by the league read their performance. Uh, well, Mike the ref, Mike Jones, uh, who's our regular correspondent, and he will be mentioning uh, Bovril later on in this podcast, he is an assessor. So yes, all games have assessors and the, the clubs also write assessments. Um, I My understanding of this is that the clubs always moan about refs, but then don't necessarily, aren't necessarily so harsh when they grade them. Because what I was told a couple of years ago is that if you, the National League, if you grade below a certain level, the referee have to fill in lots of explanations. So a lot of managers like to complain about the refs, but they don't like to put, I think it's less than four out of 10 for them, because then you have to do lots of paperwork to explain why the ref is so bad. Um, but yeah, there'll be refs assessors at every game and they will be watching the ref and they'll be judging them and they'll give them feedback and you know, referees are promoted and relegated at the end of the seasons generally, rather than not. 
Uh, you sometimes get na- uh, football league refs will pop down to do a national league game occasionally as well. You'll see some given experience on a higher level too. Um, but yes, yeah, so it is a, a sort of egalitarian system where you can climb up or down. Uh, Darren Sappy plays centre a different question. With all the weather postponements, he's seen pictures of games uh, long past where players were playing in the snow and below freezing weather. Were they much more willing to play in those days? Uh, what's the worst weather Wrexham game you've ever seen played? Right, well then. Um, right, were they willing to play in worse weather? Yeah, I think they probably were. I think there are a number of factors to that, one of which is that football has become massively more technical now, and I think that uh, the, the, the quality of the pitch is more important. You look back at some of the pitches from the 70s of Wrexham's glory days, the pitch is just mud. The ball doesn't bounce or carry, and you couldn't play the sort of football that even you know fifth division teams like us play now on that pitch because it would be a nightmare. Everybody would be furious. So I think there's been a certain raise in technical expectation. Um, I'd also say insurance comes into it. I think people are much more wary of players getting hurt. So so I think, yeah, it is true that that's the case. But like I said, maybe part of it's stylistic or technical. Worst weather. Now, every time people ask about the bad weather, everyone talks about the West Ham game of uh, 97, where there was snow on the pitch. Now, I've got to be honest and say my personal recollection of that game is the pitch didn't play too badly. Um, okay, it had snow on it, yeah. But I've seen a lot of games of snow on the pitch in the past. I think that's the most recent one, with the possible exception. There was a game against Fulham, where, no, was it? There was heavy snowfall, but I'm not sure if it gathered on the pitch that much. Um, for, for games where the weather really had an impact, I've got to say that <laughs> one of my favourite ever games, there was a season one in the early 90s, 90. 1990-91 where we were in danger of dropping into the National League it was us or Colchester and we met them quite near the end of the season at the race course at a real massive do or die game it was remarkable um, they scored first we equalise and in the second half and then immediately make a bizarre mistake and give them a goal straight away so we're 2-1 down they're ahead of us we need to win this game the, at that point, it was a bit nippy, but nothing dramatic in the weather at all. And then, whoa, God's a Wrexham fan. It was out of nowhere, just came a proper blizzard. And the wind was ludicrous. It was blowing down the pitch in our favour. And Colchester were just penned in. They couldn't get out of their penalty area. When they tried to thump the ball away, it would catch in the wind and just drop back in the penalty area. It was amazing. And Wrexham pushed on and helped by the wind and the snow that was in their eyes, uh, 1-3-2. And it was a real out-of-nowhere proper blizzard. It was incredible. Um, I also remember seeing a Welsh Cup match. <laughs> oh, this is silly. We were playing at a village from South Wales, or town, to be fair, Bridge End. And the game was put off for a day because of the high winds, which ripped a section of the roof off the cop. Um, and we played the game. They won the toss and played with the advantage of a howling gale going the same direction as I had done against Colchester in the first half. And even though we were much superior to them, we were only winning 1-0 at half-time. In fact, I remember Di Davis, the Welsh goalkeeper, Wrexham goalkeeper and Wales goalkeeper, sorry, 
uh, having the ball in his hands, trying to throw it into the wind, and then having to rush across and save his own throw because it bent straight back and was going to go past him to be the greatest own goal of all time. Um, but in the second half, we switched around. Bridgend couldn't get their penalty earlier. And we won 8-0. We scored seven goals in the second half. So I think those are probably the ones I'm going to go for. And then, and I've got to say, now this, <laughs> if Di Davis had let that throw, probably that would have been the answer to this question, but I've got something special lined up for you here. If you're watching the video, if not, I'm sorry, you're going to have to imagine it. I'll try and describe it. But Darren also asks, this past week in American football game, my local NFL team, the Patriots, had what many believe is the stupidest play they've ever seen. Um, I imagine you've seen some pretty dumb things happen in a match over the years. Care to recount them? Yes, I do. And I'll show you one as well, because it's beautiful. Um, I always remember, firstly, I've got, there is a video of this somewhere. Um a goalkeeper you had called Vince O'Keefe catching a corner and then just landing apparently safely and then just very slowly toppling over into the net to score a great own goal. Um, I've seen a couple of goalkeepers score past us for one with a long-range boot which just bounces over the goalkeeper. That's never a good luck. But there's no question in my mind what the daftest thing I've seen is. I'm afraid it involved O'Keefe again and it is something of pure beauty. So imagine the scene. Wrexham have a free kick right next to their own penalty area on the wing. The ball is about a foot outside the box. In those days, goalkeepers could pick up back passes. So this is a simple routine, done it a million times, don't even think about it, sort of uh, action. The Wrexham player, Phil Hardy, is going to tap the ball to the goalkeeper, Vince O'Keefe, who will pick it up and walk to the edge of his area. And in his own time, use it, kick it, throw it, whatever. Amazingly, just as Hardy goes to pass the ball to him, something very silly happens. O'Keefe decides to look up and give someone an instruction, and the ball rolls through his legs without him even realising it, allowing Mansfield striker Steve Wilkinson to just happen to be loitering there, probably just to try and block O'Keefe off so he can't make an early kick, to tap it into an open goal. And Incident of glorious farce. Poor Phil Hardy, the innocent party in this. And yet, you know, to have Hardy as one part of a comedy act just feels too irresistible. So uh, if you're watching it on the video, just, just feast your eyes on this. Glorious. Phil Hardy taps it. Vince O'Keefe blocks away at that moment. And Mansfield are given a goal. Absolutely astounding. Hardy was a real club legend. But uh, what was O'Keefe doing? I do not know. Amazing. <laughs> Todd Lloyd, any rumours circulating about Wrexham's January transfers? No, I haven't heard any. I'm so sorry. Um, to be frank, the club now is much better at keeping that sort of thing close to its chest. For a while, we've leaked everything, and now we don't. And I think it's because we're not fan-owned, and I love fan ownership. But one element of it is that a lot of people get to find out inside stuff and sadly want to massage their egos by making it public. It's all a bit sad. I can't help but feel that, as a fan, if you find something like that out, rather than show off, you keep it quiet so the club can do its business and, and secret and get the deal done. But that sort of thing can often scupper a deal by alerting other clubs to the availability of a player and then they come in and pinch them off you. So you're only hurting your own club if you spread rumours around. Which I guess means if I did know something, I wouldn't say anything. 
but I actually genuinely don't know anything as well. <laughs> you know? um, oh, now, can we just move on quickly? Now we're going to the, the odds and ends at the end of the podcast. Bovril. Our food tasting thing was Bovril. Liquid cow, essentially. Glorious stuff. I had my first Bovril of the season. Bovril is a hot tea, beef tea. You've got to... You've got to have it in a football ground. You can't have it somewhere else. And you've got to have it when it's really cold. If you have it when it's not cold enough, it's disappointing. I once, I so much loved Bovril at football, I bought some to make at home. Oh, it's vile having it at home. You've got to be in a freezing cold footy match. And then it's it's the it's the elixir of the gods. It's glorious, glorious stuff. And Mike the Ref, who I mentioned earlier, was a referee and correspondent the day before and took a wonderful picture of what he calls, quite rightly, a proper football drink, a whole pallet of jars of Bovril in what looks like its spreadable form, was it spreadable, in its thick form, rather than powdered, so you can put it in, oh, heat it up, that's the good stuff, that's the proper stuff. Um, Jeff Lang told us on Wednesday he prepared his alongside uh, Roy Keane for on sandwich. Roy Keane, the terminally grumpy TV pundit who was captain of Ireland and Man United, um, famously made a speech complaining about uh, the lack of atmosphere at Man United games because there's so many corporate fans saying all you can hear is them rustling the packets on their prawn sandwiches. Beautifully done. And then also Barcode Mark saying Bovril saved my life in the mid to late 70s games. Quite right. Every time I drink it now, I think of styrofoam cups and paying about 5p or 6p rather. And my late father who bought them for me. Oh, wow, yeah. Evocative. Bovril's a, a proper British tradition. As indeed are the pork pies, which I've got to say again, are not really football tradition, but we seem to have fallen into eating them. And the legendary Barton Bank says, may I present the only brand of Melton Mowbray pork pie made within the Melton Mowbray postcode. The picture may sustain you. The picture did sustain me throughout those cold hours as we wait for Scunthorpe to turn up. They weren't really hours, but you know what I mean. Um, Brian Greenberg also says, when you're coming to Western New York so we can get buffalo wings, I'm up for that. Can buffaloes fly these days? Damn it, I thought Futurama was a comedy. It's a documentary. Sorry. And Pamela RWK, before the match, was settling down to listen to it with a hot, with a hot cider and pizza pie with pineapple and bacon. Canadian bacon. Reynolds style. Don't diss me. For my old, my odd American tastes. Well, you know, Hawaii is one of the non-contiguous states. But that's no excuse. Pineapple on pizza is a crime. Pamela, I'm letting you off because you've always seemed very nice. But naughty, naughty. First strike. <laughs> John Devitt on films. Now, I did provocatively say on Ask Rexham before the Scunthorpe game, please tell me your favourite Christmas film and I will mock your poor choice. So, here we go. John David says the best is Home Alone 2. Um, on a very serious note, though, Die Hard isn't a Christmas film, is a Christmas film, and is in fact Home Alone for adults. Kevin grows up to be either John McCain or Jigsaw from Saw. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. Um, lovely logic. It is neither of those films. You are wrong, John. Dan says Elf, surely. No, Dan, it is not. These are awful films. Actually, Home Alone and Die Hard's a good film, so, you know. Um, Michelle Poole says, Elf is the only good Christmas film. Incorrect. You've also never heard of a Bovril. Well, it's something epic, but don't have it until it's really cold. Uh, incorrect. Sorry about that. Tim Kay 
says wishes us a merry christmas and say his favorite christmas film was muppet christmas carol but your thoughts on santa claus conquers the martians are also welcome you're 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 listening to a man who this week watched ape versus lizard on the sci-fi channel so yeah you're right to recommend that and i will seek it out and i am willing to keep an open mind on whether that is the other good christmas film but muppet christmas carol no i will not allow it you are wrong i'm sorry tim uh ron wilkes says die hard's the greatest christmas film of all time incorrect although also he mentions spirited starring a certain canadian actor and football team owner is certainly moving up the list gotta be careful what i say here haven't i i'm sure it's jolly good i haven't seen it yet i'll watch it with an open mind you're wrong it's not going to be that either um arnie austin says muppets christmas carol no <laughs> sorry and I better reveal then the only good Christmas film. And I am wearing a t-shirt. My only Christmas clothing, which I was given last Christmas Day, um, is the t-shirt from National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Clearly the only good Christmas film. Apart from Home Alone and Die Hard. It's a Wonderful Life. Oh, I hope I've warmed them up enough. Now, Jamie said that only only Wrexham can stop him from finishing his audio book today. I'm glad we stood in the way of literacy. As an English teacher, I'm glad we stopped you. I hope it was something good. We just we just made you enjoy it for a day longer. That's all I'm saying. Um Ron Wink said it'd be great if, if I could use a blinded me with science take when talking about Sam Dolby. Ron, I love you. You are fantastic. Yes, I used to love Thomas Dolby. Um and yeah, I mean Sam Dolby is something of a hyperactive player isn't he <laughs> yeah, joke for people our age absolutely but i've worked magnus pike into it science brilliant um trey campmeyer says not so much an ask Wrexham question but it's a comment on my comment about being in werewolf country i did say that north wales is werewolf country so i had a thought and sh I, and sure enough an american werewolf in london excellent film maybe that's the best christmas film um some shots occur in Wales. There's some shot scenes in Wales. Thanks for the Easter egg, Mark. True, there is actually quite quite a lot of daft werewolf stories about around Wrexham. And obviously they're not true. Or are they? And finally, I've got to say hello to Samantha Parry. We bumped into each other outside the match. And I think your judgment of me as a gorgeous man is accurate. I've got to say, I've got to say that first. Um, I made the tactical error of reporting to my wife your later tweet asking me to marry you. Um, it didn't go down well, I've got to be honest, and I'm now sleeping in the coal shed. But, nonetheless, I it, was, it was lovely to meet you, and my wife wants to have words. She, she'll be in touch. So, that's it, chaps. Another long and winding podcast is done. Enjoy your Christmas, please. Have a wonderful, wonderful Christmas. And I hope you have a very wonderful Boxing Day listening to us commentating on a glorious victory against Holly Moors. Let's hope so, eh? So, with the final score of your questions, 70, me, nil, I'm Mark Griffiths from Wrexham AFC. The dollar flowing. This is the Final Whistle Podcast from the Wrexham AFC media team.